You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with the sermon this afternoon, I would invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26. We'll read Matthew 26, the verses 17 through 30. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Our text this afternoon is the Word of God as it's summarized and confessed by the Church in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Days 28, 29, and the first question and answer of Lord's Day 30. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his gifts? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord, as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his shed blood? First, to accept with a believing heart all the suffering and the death of Christ and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Second, to be united more and more to his sacred body through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us. Therefore, although Christ is in heaven and we are on earth, yet we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bones, and we forever live and are governed by one spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. Where has Christ promised that he will nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper. 
The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul where he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Are then the bread and the wine changed into the real body and blood of Christ? No, just as the water of baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ and is not the washing away of sins itself, but is simply God's sign and pledge, so also the bread in the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, although it's called Christ's body in keeping with the nature and usage of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and why does Paul speak about a participation in the body and blood of Christ? Well, Christ speaks this way for a good reason. He wants to teach us by his supper that as bread and wine sustain us in this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are true food and drink for our souls to eternal life. But even more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge, first, that through the working of the Holy Spirit, we share in his true body and blood, as surely as we receive with our mouth these holy signs and remembrance of him, and second, that all his suffering and obedience are as certainly ours as if we personally had suffered and paid for our sins. So what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he has accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ, and an accursed idolatry. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this weekend in Canada, we celebrate Thanksgiving Day. And Thanksgiving Day is a day that a lot of us celebrate by having dinners or going for hikes or spending time with family and friends. There's many different ways in which you can enjoy Thanksgiving Day, I hope that there's one thing that we're all certain to do, however, on this Thanksgiving Day, and that is to give thanks. I sometimes wonder about many who celebrate Thanksgiving Day. Who are they thanking? Is there any Thanksgiving going on at all? Are they, are they just thankful to themselves for having earned it or what? I don't really know. But I know that it's far better to acknowledge the one who gives us all good things, our Father in heaven, that all these things come from his hand. 
Along with Thanksgiving, along with giving thanks, perhaps you'll be eating a meal together. Many people do. And so it's fitting that in this way we we hear and learn from the word of the Lord this afternoon about another meal, another very significant meal, a regular meal of thanksgiving in the church. The Lord has ordained for us, and that, of course, is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a beautiful thing. It's rich, it's powerful, but it's also, however, often filled with controversy. Either controversy on the one hand, or apathy on the other. It's either too hot or too cold. In the days of the Reformation, there was rightly a lot of discussion and disagreement about the sacrament because of the many extra and mistaken elements that had become part of the Roman Catholic Mass. We read about them in that last question and answer. So there was that discussion going on, but then even among the Reformers, there was disagreement and division about what the Lord's Supper was all about. And reality teaches us that even today, in discussions in which the Lord's Supper is central There are often a lot of disagreements among us, a lot of fights and divisions. This is strange and sad, because the Lord's Supper is a supper of communion. It's a supper of unity. It's a supper that is given to all of us to strengthen our faith and to bring us together in Christ. On the flip side of the too hot, there's the the too cold. And when we're not fighting about the Lord's Supper, it's very easy to slip into apathy about the Lord's Supper. And so we become focused on the superficial. Our focus before, during, and after the Supper is on things like if anyone's going to drop a piece of bread, or if the minister's going to spill the wine, or how long that service was, or how small my piece of bread was. Things that have nothing to do really with the Lord's Supper, but yet... They take our attention. Or, even if we avoid sensationalizing the supper and we avoid the external distractions and superficialities, how are we even sure that we're participating in the Lord's Supper in the right way? Do we have the right frame of mind and understanding of what it's all about? Do we properly remember the death of our Lord? Do we know the purpose of Lord's Supper? Do we know why we are partaking? And so the path to true communion in the Lord's Supper is one that's filled with pitfalls. A lot of ways to get it wrong. But this too teaches us something about the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? And that is, it is a gift of God's grace. It's not about us getting it all right. It's a gift from God and He is determined to work powerfully through it. That's how he ordained it. And so we need not become overly discouraged or or frustrated about it. But what we need to do is we need to turn our attention to the grace of God and to the word of God. And to what is being offered and displayed and received as we receive the bread and the wine. The Lord's Supper ought to teach us not to focus on ourselves, but on Jesus Christ. At the Supper, we feed on Christ. We remember Him. 
We benefit from Him. We share together in Him. We're nourished by Him. And we wait in eager expectation for Him. So that's our theme this afternoon. In the Lord's Supper, we feed on Christ. The Lord's Supper is a commemorative meal. We remember Him. It's a sacrificial meal. It's a communal meal. It's a nourishing meal. And it is an expectant meal. So if we want to learn about the Lord's Supper, as we first look at the fact that it is a a commemorative or a, a memorial meal, there's about... Ten passages or so in Scripture that are directly relevant to the Lord's Supper. We're not going to look at all of them this afternoon. In fact, we're going to focus most of our attention on Matthew 26. And most of the themes, or all of them in fact, that we will discuss this afternoon are present in our reading from Matthew 26. It doesn't seem so at first. You can think, for example, that it's... It's only in Luke and in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord Jesus instructed His disciples about exactly what we're looking at, that we are to do it in remembrance of Him. But yet, that is present in Matthew 26. It's present in the very first verse when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? The Passover. They celebrated the Lord's Supper on the occasion of the Passover, and the Passover itself was a memorial meal. We need to remember that the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the day of of the Passover. Because it's significant. What he did was he took the Passover and he showed its fulfillment and completion in in himself. He showed that the Passover was from then on done with. And he used that occasion to institute a new meal for God's people, which is the Lord's Supper. The Passover itself was a memorial meal. It was about remembering. Now, you'll remember, perhaps you don't know, the first Passover was celebrated by God's people in Egypt. There had been nine plagues beforehand. The tenth plague was about to happen, the plague in which the firstborn child in in Egypt would be killed by the angel of the Lord. And to prevent this from happening to God's people, the Israelites, they were instructed to kill a lamb, to spread its blood on the doorpost, on the frame of their houses, and then to eat a sacrificial meal together in which they would eat that, that lamb. And they would also have other elements, bitter herbs and unleavened bread. That was the first Passover. But it wasn't only that first occurrence of the Passover that was significant, for in that very first occurrence, Moses instructed people to continue the Passover every year from then on. And they would do that to remember the occasion of that first Passover, and that is that the Lord had provided redemption for God's people. But notice that remembering isn't just simply call to mind, oh yeah, that's right, God saved the people from Egypt. Or or don't forget, it's not like a yearly uh, birthday calendar that just reminds you that, that something happened on that day. No, by remembering that great work of redemption... 
The Israelites participated in that redemption. It wasn't just that some people had been saved. It was that they had been saved. They enjoyed life in God's promised land because he had delivered his people out of Egypt before. To remember is to participate in. Hundreds of years later, say during the time of King Hezekiah, a little boy could ask his father, Daddy, why do we celebrate the Passover? And his dad could answer, Well, son, it's because God saved us. And so it is that when we eat and drink in remembrance of the great redemption that God sent through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, we aren't simply being careful not to forget. It's not like we keep celebrating the Lord's Supper because otherwise we won't remember what Jesus Christ did. No, we participate in that redemption by celebrating the Lord's Supper. We participate through worship, through trust, through obedience, in the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread broken and the cup given to me, so surely was His body offered for me and His blood poured out for me on the cross. The meal is a memorial meal, we are remembering, but it's an active participating kind of remembering that we do. Now, understanding this helps us to understand the language that the Lord Jesus used at that first supper. Look at Matthew 26, verse 26. As they're celebrating the Passover there on the occasion of that first Lord's Supper, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Those words, this is my body, have caused a lot of division in the history of the church. From the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, where the bread and the wine become Christ's actual body and blood, to the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, where where they say that the real body of Christ is physically present, the, the wine and bread aren't transformed, but, but Christ is somehow mysteriously present there in his body. To the other extreme of, of what Zwingli taught, which was mere symbolism. That it's just simply a reminder of Christ's body and blood. Well, we come to understand what the Lord Jesus meant when he said, Take and eat, this is my body. When we understand that he was doing this on the occasion of Passover. In the Passover, it was customary for a young boy present to ask his father, Daddy, what's the meaning of the bread? This was part of the ritual that had developed. And his father would reply to that, This this bread is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now, the father wasn't saying that, you know, this loaf was actually the same loaf that the people ate hundreds of years ago when they were redeemed. No. And he's not saying this loaf suddenly changed to become that loaf. No. He's saying that by eating this piece of bread, they're participating in that same affliction and glorious redemption of their forefathers so long ago. Now imagine Jesus taking that piece of bread 
And instead of saying those words, this is the bread of the affliction and redemption, he says, this is my body. He points the disciples to himself and he says that this bread is the participation in his coming affliction and death for their glorious and ultimate and final redemption. And so, at the Lord's Supper, in receiving the bread, in drinking the wine, we participate in the suffering and death of Christ on our behalf. And so we're humbled and yet strengthened and renewed in our confidence and trust of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So it's a memorial meal. It's also a sacrificial meal. It's a meal in which we receive the benefits of the sacrifice of our great Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Again, to understand this, we need to understand the Passover. When Moses prescribed the Passover, you remember, it was on the night that the angel of the Lord would go through the land and kill all the firstborn of Egypt, all those who didn't have blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And so the lamb was given for their firstborn. He was a substitute for the death of their firstborn. And also that the blood of the lamb showed the separation from those inside the house to those outside. They received condemnation. The ones inside were saved. In other words, the sacrifice of the lamb was crucial to the whole celebration of the Passover. And yet at the same time, in that meal afterward, they weren't sacrificing the lamb again. That had already been done. But rather, it was a feast. It was an act of of communal worship as a family, and then later as a nation, made possible through the sacrifice of the lamb. The Lord's Supper is very similar in that regard for us. It's not as though, as, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches and continues to teach even to this day as the the priest does the Mass every single day, that Jesus Christ is sacrificed again and again and again and again for the sins of God's people. That would contradict the once-for-all nature that the book of Hebrews repeatedly talks about. Rather, at the Lord's Supper, in remembering His death, we're sitting down at a sacrificial meal. We're remembering his death and sharing in the benefits of his sacrifice on our behalf. Just like the Passover lamb's blood protected the Israelites, so the blood of Jesus Christ turns God's wrath away from us onto his son. And it gives us cause for festive and communal worship. We do this in the Lord's Supper by eating and drinking. As the Catechism explains, to eat is to accept what Christ has done and so receive forgiveness of sins and life eternal. That is, all and only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And at his table, as we sit down for the sacrificial meal, that we receive the benefits of Christ by faith alone, by trusting in what he's done for us. So the Lord's Supper is a sacrificial meal. It's also a communal meal. It's not merely, though, in the sense that every or most meals are communal. If you're sitting down to a Thanksgiving meal in the near future, 
you're probably going to sit down with others. And in that sense, a meal is just a communal event. But the Lord's Supper is communal in a deeper sense. The Lord's Supper is, first of all, an expression of our communion, not with each other, but with Jesus Christ. And that is a profound truth. In a world, if just think about it, our world is, is one that's filled with disunity. There's, there's racial tensions, there's economic disparity, there's relationship breakdowns, there's radical individualizing of our society and, and decommuning by all kinds of means, uh, the way we understand family, the way we understand uh, relationships, the way we understand communication, you can think of social media, all these things work against our coming together, our communion. And so the communal aspect of the Lord's Supper becomes even more beautiful and necessary. In 1 Corinthians 10, as the Apostle Paul was was warning the Corinthians to avoid idolatry, he brings up the subject of the Lord's Supper. He says, in taking that bread and wine, you're participating in Jesus Christ. That is, you are uniting yourself to Jesus Christ. When you eat and you drink, you are uniting yourself to Jesus Christ, aligning yourself with Him, participating by faith in what He has done for you. The communal aspect of the Lord's Supper is not, first of all, about the communion that we have with each other. It's about the communion that we have with Christ. But, this is the beautiful thing in, in our world where, where community is broken down. From the deep communion with Christ, we receive communion with each other. We're all together taking the bread. We're all together drinking the wine. We're all together confessing our sins and our need for redemption only in Christ. Paul says, because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. And it's exactly this deep and and profound unity in Christ that's supposed to be shared at the Lord's Supper that causes Paul to, to become so upset just in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 11. Because he finds out that at the Lord's Supper of the, of the Corinthians, that there's, there's divisions, that the rich are excluding the poor, and that those who arrive first are, are eating and getting drunk while the second-class citizens of the church are waiting to receive the leftovers, if they get anything at all. Paul disapproves of that. God, we read there, disapproves of that. And there's one main reason for that. Paul says, when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, there are divisions among you. You come to eat the supper of communion with Christ and communion with each other, and there's disunity. There's one-upmanship. How can this be? Even worse, the divisions among you, he's saying, expose something about your communion with Christ. Can the one who knows profoundly their sin, their need for that body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, can the one who really understands that possibly think that they're better than their brother and sister? Can they possibly promote disunity 
in the church. And so, brothers and sisters, to go to the Lord's Supper with a divisive or an arrogant attitude is to eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. To destroy the communion of the believers is to leave the communion of Christ. We need to come together at the table and experience that deep and true communion all together. The one that is only made possible through the death of our Savior. So it's a communal meal. It's also a nourishing meal. Again, if I can point to that meal, Thanksgiving meal, you're looking forward to maybe some turkey or ham, potatoes, gravy, salad, vegetables, whatever you're having, you'll probably be thoroughly nourished. Now compare that to the small piece of bread that you receive at the Lord's Supper and that little cup of wine. How can these things be nourishing? Well, it's nourishing because the nourishment that we receive in the Lord's Supper is not finally from the bread or the wine. That is, through feeding on the bread and the wine, we feed on Christ himself. By faith, our souls are nourished and strengthened. Just like bread gives us sustenance for life and and wine feeds our physical existence. Christ is our true heavenly bread. It was Christ himself who said, I am the bread of life. By pointing us to himself in the bread and wine, Christ nourishes our soul. He meets our needs at the deepest and most profound level. He forgives our sins. And he reunites us to God. Finally, the Lord's Supper is not only a meal in which we participate in the past work of Jesus Christ and in which we receive nourishment in the present time, but also it's a supper in which we look forward to the future. We look forward ahead to the return of Christ and the greatest Thanksgiving feast that our minds could ever imagine, greater even. Paul mentions in in 1 Corinthians 11 that we, he says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper is not only a sacrificial meal in which we share in his death, it's also a proclamation of his death for all time until he comes. It looks forward. Well, in our reading of Matthew 26, this also comes up. Christ talks about that forward-looking aspect. He, He talks about it in verse 29. He says to his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. What's Jesus saying there? Well, some background will help us. In the Jewish Passover liturgy of this time, as they would eat the Passover, there would be four cups of wine. The cup of blessing, which Jesus called the communion in his blood and the the new covenant through his blood, was the third cup to be shared. As you know from the Lord's Supper liturgy, we continue to share together as a church the cup of blessing, that third cup in the liturgy. And as far as we know, the Lord Jesus never drank that fourth cup. Instead, he sang a hymn with his disciples. Likely, as we mentioned already, from Psalms 113 to 18, before going out to the Mount of Olives. There, at the Mount of Olives, he would be betrayed. 
by one of his own disciples. And in a series of shameful events, the Lord Jesus Christ would be crucified as a criminal. Of course, on that cross with his body pierced and his blood poured out, he was the ultimate and final Passover lamb. The lamb that was truly without blemish. As John had said at the beginning of his ministry, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And it's that lamb that we continue to remember, to to commune with, to share in and be nourished by as we look forward in the Lord's Supper. And we will, and we ought to continue regularly and faithfully until that great and final day that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, returns and finishes His conquering work of conquering sin and Satan and death once and for all. And then we'll gather around with Him at the greatest of all banquets, the greatest feast imaginable, And then the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, will lift up that fourth cup in victory. And we will drink the wine new with Him in the kingdom of our God. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.